The Rondoli Sisters by Guy de Massapin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rondoli Sisters by Guy de Massapin. Part 1. I set out to see Italy thoroughly on two occasions, and each time I was stopped at the frontier and could not get any further. So I do not know Italy, said my friend Charles, and yet my two attempts gave me a charming idea of the manners of that beautiful country. Some time, however, I must visit its cities, as well as its museums and works of art with which it abounds. I will make another attempt to penetrate into the interior, which I have not yet succeeded in doing. You don't understand me, so I will explain. In the spring of 1874, I was seized with an irresistible desire to see Venice, Florence, Rome, and Naples. I am, as you know, not a great traveler. It appears to me a useless and fatiguing business. Nights spent in a train, the disturbed slumber of the railway carriage, with the attendant headache and stiffness in every limb, sudden waking in that rolling box, the unwashed feeling with your eyes and hair full of dust, the smell of coal on which one's lungs feed, those bad dinners in the draughty refreshment rooms are, according to my ideas, a horrible way of beginning a pleasure trip. After this introduction, we have the miseries of the hotel, some great hotel, full of people, and yet so empty, the strange room and the doubtful bed. I am most particular about my bed. It is the sanctuary of life. We entrust our almost naked and fatigued bodies to it so that we may be reanimated by reposing between soft sheets and feathers there we find the most delightful hours of our existence the hours of love and of sleep the bed is sacred and should be respected venerated loved by us as the best and most delightful of our earthly possessions i cannot lift up the sheets of a hotel bed without a shudder of disgust who has occupied it the night before perhaps dirty, revolting people have slept in it. I begin then to think of all the horrible people with whom one rubs shoulders every day, people with suspicious-looking skin, which makes one think of the feet and all the rest. I call to mind those who carry about with them the sickening smell of garlic or of humanity. I think of those who are deformed and unhealthy, of the perspiration emanating from the sick, of everything that is ugly and filthy in man and all this perhaps in the bed in which i am about to sleep the mere idea of it makes me feel ill as i get into it and then the hotel dinner those dreary hotel dinners in the midst of all sorts of extraordinary people or else those terrible solitary dinners at a small table in a restaurant feebly lighted by a wretched composite candle under a shade again those terribly dull evenings in some unknown town do you know anything more wretched than the approach of dusk on such an occasion one goes about as if almost in a dream looking at faces that one never has seen before and never will see again listening to people talking about matters which are quite indifferent to you in a language that perhaps you do not understand you have a terrible feeling almost as if you were lost and you continue to walk on so as not to be obliged to return to the hotel where you will feel more lost still because you are at home in a home which belongs to any one who can pay for it and at last you sink into a chair in some well-lit cafe whose gilding and lights oppress you a thousand times more than the shadows in the streets 
and you feel so abominably alone in front of the glass of flat bock beer that a kind of madness seizes you the longing to go somewhere or other no matter where as long as you need not return in front of the marble table amid the dazzling lights and then suddenly you are aware that you are really alone in the world always and everywhere and that in places which we know the familiar jostlings give us the illusion only of human fraternity at such moments of self-abandonment and sombre isolation in distant cities one thinks broadly clearly profoundly then one suddenly sees the whole of life outside the vision of eternal hope apart from the deceptions of our innate habits and of our expectations of happiness which we indulge in dreams never to be realized it is only by going a long distance from home that we can fully understand how short-lived and empty everything near at hand is by searching for the unknown we perceive how commonplace and effervescent everything is only by wandering over the face of the earth can we understand how small the world is and how very much alike it is everywhere how well i know and how i hate and almost fear those haphazard walks through unknown streets and this is the reason why as nothing would induce me to undertake a tour of italy by myself i made up my mind to accompany my friend paul you know paul and how he idolizes women to him the earth is habitable only because they are there the sun gives light and is warm because it shines upon them the air is soft and balmy because it blows upon their skin and ruffles the soft hair on their temples and the moon is charming because it makes them dream and imparts a languorous charm to love every act and action of paul's has woman for its motive all his thoughts all his efforts and hopes are centred in them when i mentioned italy to paul he at first absolutely refused to leave paris i however began to tell him of the adventures i had had on my travels i assured him that all italian women are charming and i made him hope for the most refined pleasures at naples thanks to certain letters of introduction that i had and so at last he allowed himself to be persuaded the rondoli sisters part two we took the express one thursday evening paul and i hardly any one goes south at that time of the year so that we had the carriages to ourselves and both of us were in a bad temper on leaving paris sorry for having yielded to the temptation of this journey and regretting marley the seine and our lazy boning excursions and all those pleasures in and near paris which are so dear to every true parisian as soon as the train started paul stuck himself in his corner and said it is most idiotic to go all that distance and as it was too late for him to change his mind then i said well you should not have come he made no answer and i felt very much inclined to laugh when i saw how furious he looked he certainly is almost rather like a squirrel but then every one of us has retained the type of some animal or other as the mark of his primitive origin how many people have jaws like a bulldog or heads like goats rabbits foxes horses or oxen paul is a squirrel turned into a man he has its bright quick eyes its hair its pointed nose its small fine supple active body and a certain mysterious resemblance in his general bearing in fact a similarity of movement of gesture and of bearing which might almost be taken for a recollection at last 
we both went to sleep with that uncomfortable slumber of the railway carriage which is interrupted by horrible cramps in the arms and neck and by the sudden stoppages of the train we woke up as we were passing along the rhone soon the continued noise of crickets came in through the windows that cry which seems to be the voice of the warm earth the song of provence and seemed to instil into our looks our breasts our soul a light and happy feeling of the south that odour of the parched earth of the stony and light soil of the olive with its grey-green foliage when the train stopped again a railway guard came along the train calling out "Villains!" in a sonorous voice with an accent again that gave us a taste of that provence which the shrill note of the crickets had already imparted to us nothing fresh happened till we got to marseilles where we alighted for breakfast when we returned to our carriage we found a woman installed there paul with a delighted glance at me gave his short moustache a mechanical twirl and passed his fingers through his hair which had become slightly out of order with the night's journey then he sat down opposite the newcomer whenever i happened to see a striking face either in travelling or in society i always have the strongest inclination to find out what character mind and intellectual capacities are beneath those features she was a young and pretty woman certainly a native of the south of france with splendid eyes beautiful wavy hair which was so thick and long that it seemed almost too heavy for her head she was dressed with a certain southern bad taste which made her look a little vulgar her regular features had none of the grace and finish of the refined races of that slight delicacy which members of the aristocracy inherit from their birth and which is the hereditary mark of thinner blood her bracelets were too big to be of gold she wore earrings with large white stones that were certainly not diamonds and she belonged unmistakably to the people one surmised she would talk too loud and shout on every occasion with exaggerated gestures when the train started she remained motionless in her place in the attitude of a woman who was indignant without even looking at us paul began to talk to me evidently with an eye to effect trying to attract her attention shopkeepers expose their wares to catch the notice of passers-by she however did not appear to be paying the least attention toulon ten minutes to wait refreshment room the porters shouted paul motioned to me to get out and as soon as we had done so he said i wonder who on earth she could be i began to laugh i'm sure i don't know and i don't in the least care he was quite excited she is uncommonly fresh and a pretty girl what eyes she has and how cross she looks she must have been dreadfully worried for she takes no notice of anything you will have all your troubles for nothing i growled he began to lose his temper i am not taking any trouble my dear fellow i think her an extremely pretty woman that is all if one could only speak to her but i don't know how to begin cannot you give me an idea can't you guess who she is upon my word i cannot however i should rather think she is some strolling actress who is going to rejoin her company after a love adventure he seemed quite upset as if i had said something insulting what makes you think that on the contrary i think she looks most respectable just look at her bracelets i said her earrings and her whole dress 
I should not be the least surprised if she were a dancer or a circus rider, but most likely a dancer. Her whole style smacks very much of the theatre. He evidently did not like the idea. She is much too young, I am sure. She is hardly twenty. Well, I replied, there are many things that one can do before one is twenty. Dancing and elocution are among them. Take your seats for Nice, Vintimaglia, the guards and porters called. We got in. Our fellow passenger was eating an orange, and certainly she did not do it elegantly. She had spread her pocket handkerchief on her knees, and the way in which she tore off the peel, opened her mouth to put in the pieces, and then spat the pips out the window, showed her training had been decidedly vulgar. She also seemed more put out than ever, and swallowed the fruit with an exceeding comic air of rage. Paul devoured her with his eyes, and tried to attract her attention and excite her curiosity, but in spite of his talk, and of the manner in which he brought in well-known names, she did not pay the least attention to him. After passing Fréjus and Saint Raphael, the train passed through a veritable garden, a paradise of roses, and groves of oranges and lemons covered with fruits and flowers at the same time. That delightful coast from Marseilles to Genoa is a kingdom of perfumes in the home of flowers. June is the time to see it in all its beauty, when every narrow valley, on every slope, the exquisite flowers are growing luxuriantly and roses fields hedges groves of roses they climb the walls blossom on the roofs hang from the trees peep out from among the bushes they are white red yellow large and small single simple self-colored dress or full of heavy brilliant toilettes their breath makes the air heavy and relaxing and the still more penetrating odor of the orange blossoms sweetens the atmosphere till it might almost be called the refinement of odor the shore with its brown rocks was bathed by the motionless mediterranean the hot summer sun stretched like a fiery cloud over the mountains over the long expanses of sand and over the motionless apparently solid blue sea the train went on through the tunnels along the slopes above the water on straight wall-like viaducts and on a soft vague saltish smell a smell of drying seaweed mingled at times with the strong heavy perfume of the flowers but paul neither saw looked at nor smelled anything for our fellow-traveller engrossed all his intention when we reached caen as we wished to speak to me he signed me to get out and as soon as i did so he took me by the arm do you know she is really charming just look at her eyes and i never saw anything like her hair don't excite yourself i replied or else address her if you have any intentions that way she does not look unapproachable i fancy although she appears to be a little bit grumpy why don't you speak to her he said i don't know what to say for i am always terribly stupid at first i can never make advances to a woman in the street i follow them go round and round them and quite close to them but never know what to say at first i only tried to enter into conversation with a woman in that way i promised paul to do all i could to bring about a conversation and when we had taken our place again i politely asked our neighbor have you any objection to the smell of tobacco madam she merely replied non capisco so she's an italian i felt an absurd inclination to laugh as paul did not understand a word of that language i was obliged to act as his interpreter so i said in italian i asked you madam whether you had any objection to tobacco smoke with an angry look she replied che me fa she had neither turned her head nor looked at me and i really did not know whether to take this 
what do i care for an authorization a refusal a sign of indifference or for a mere let me alone madam i replied if you mind the smell of tobacco in the least she again said mika in a tone which seemed to mean i wish to goodness you would leave me alone it was however a kind of permission so i said to paul you may smoke he looked at me in that curious sort of way that people have when they try to understand others who are talking in a strange language before them and asked me what did you say to her i asked whether we might smoke and she said we might do whatever we liked whereupon i lit my cigar did she say anything more if you had counted her words you would have, would have noticed she used exactly six two of which gave me to understand that she knew no french so four remained and much can be said in four words paul seemed quite unhappy disappointed and at sea so to speak but suddenly the italian asked me in that tone of discontent which seemed habitual to her do you know what time we shall get to genoa at eleven o'clock i replied then after a moment i went on my friend and i are also going to genoa and if we can be of any service to you we shall be very happy as you are quite alone but she interrupted with such a mika that i did not venture another word what did she say asked paul she said she thought you were charming but he was in no humour for joking and begged me dryly not to make fun of him so i translated her question and my polite offer which had been so rudely rejected then he became as restless as a caged squirrel if we only knew he said what hotel she was going to we could go to the same try to find out and so as to have another opportunity to make her talk it was not particularly easy and i did not know what pretext to invent desirous as i was to make the acquaintance of this unapproachable person we passed nice monaco mentone and the train stopped at the frontier for the examination of luggage although i hate those ill-bred people who breakfast and dine in railway carriages i went and bought a quantity of good things to make one last attack on her by their means i felt sure that this girl must ordinarily be by no means inaccessible something had put her out and made her irritable but very little would suffice a mere word or some agreeable offer to decide her and vanquish her we started again and we three were still alone i spread my edibles on the seat i cut up the fowl put the slices of ham neatly on a piece of paper and then carefully laid out our dessert strawberries plums cherries and cakes close to the girl when she saw that we were about to eat she took a piece of chocolate and two little crisp cakes out of her pocket and began to munch on them ask her to have some of ours paul said in a whisper that is exactly what i wish to do it is rather a difficult matter as she however glanced from time to time at our provisions i felt sure that she would still be hungry when she finished what she had with her so as soon as her frugal meal was over i said to her it would be very kind of you if you would take some of this fruit again she said mika but less crossly than before well then i said may i offer you a little wine i see you have not drunk anything it is italian wine and as we are now in your own country we should be very pleased to see such a pretty italian mouth accept the offer of its french neighbours she shook her head slightly evidently wishing to refuse but very desirous of accepting and her mika this time was almost polite i took the flask which was covered with straw in the italian fashion and filled the glass i offered it to her please drink it i said to bid us welcome to your country she took the glass with her usual look and emptied it in a draught like a woman consumed with thirst and then gave it back to me without even saying thank you 
I then offered her the cherries. Please take some, I said. We should be glad if you will. Out of her corner she looked at all the fruit spread beside her, and said so rapidly that I could scarcely follow her. I do not care for cherries or plums, only for strawberries. I put a newspaper full of wild strawberries on her lap, and she ate them quickly, tossing them into her mouth from some distance in a coquettish and charming manner. When she had finished the little red heap, which soon disappeared under the rapid action of her hands, I asked her, What may I offer you now? I will take a little chicken, she replied. She certainly devoured half of it, tearing it to pieces with the rapid movements of her jaw like some carnivorous animal. Then she made up her mind to have some cherries, which she did not like, and then some plums, then some little cakes. Then she said, I have had enough, and sat back in her corner. I was much amused, and tried to make her eat more, insisting, in fact, till she suddenly flew into a rage and flung a furious mica at me that I would not any longer run the risk of spoiling her digestion. I turned to my friend. My poor Paul, I said, I'm afraid we have had our trouble for nothing. The night came on, one of those hot summer nights which extend their warm shade over the burning and exhausted earth. Here and there, in the distance, by the sea, on capes and promontories, bright stars, which I was at times almost inclined to confound with lighthouses, began to shine on the dark horizon. The scent of the orange trees became more penetrating, and we breathed with delight, distending our lungs to inhale it more deeply. The balmy air is so soft, delicious, almost divine. Suddenly I noticed something like a shower of stars under the dense shade of the trees along the line, where it was quite dark. It might have been taken for drops of light, leaping, flying, playing and running among the leaves, or for small stars fallen from the sky in order to have an excursion on the earth. But they were only fireflies, dancing a strange fiery ballet in the perfumed air. One of them happened to come into our carriage and shed its intermittent light, which seemed to be extinguished one moment and to be burning the next. I covered the carriage lamp with its blue shade and watched the strange fly careening about its fiery flight. Suddenly it settled on the dark hair of our neighbor, who was half dozing after dinner. Paul seemed delighted. With his eyes fixed on the bright sparkling spot, which seemed like a living jewel on the forehead of the sleeping woman. The Italian woke up about eleven o'clock, with the bright insect still in her hair. When I saw her move, I said, We are just getting to Genoa, madam and she murmured without answering me, as if possessed by some obstinate and embarrassing thought. What am I going to do, I wondered. And then suddenly she asked, Would you like me to come with you? I was so taken aback that I really did not understand her. With us? How do you mean? She repeated, looking more and more furious. Would you like me to be your guide now, as soon as we get out of the train? I am quite willing, but where do you want to go? She shrugged her shoulders with an air of supreme indifference. Wherever you like, what does it matter to me? She repeated her chemifa twice. But we are going to the hotel. Very well, let us all go to the hotel, she said in a contemptuous voice. I turned to Paul and said, she wishes to know whether we should like her to come with us. My friend's utter surprise restored my self-possession. He stammered, with, with us? Where, where to? What for? How? I don't know. She made this strange proposal to me in a most irritated voice. I told her that we were going to the hotel, and she said, Very well, let us all go there. I suppose she is without a penny. Certainly she has a very strange way of making acquaintances. Paul, who was very much excited, exclaimed, I am quite agreeable. Tell her that we will all go wherever she likes. Then, after a moment's hesitation, he said uneasily, We must know, however, with whom she wishes to go, with you or with me. I turned to the Italian. 
did not even seem to be listening to us, and said, We shall be very happy to have you with us, but my friend wishes to know whether you will take my arm or his. She opened her black eyes wide with vague surprise, and said, Chez me far. I was obliged to explain myself. In Italy, I believe, when a man looks after a woman, fulfills her wishes, and satisfies her caprices, he is called a patito. Which of us, too, would you take for your patito? Without the slightest hesitation, she replied, You. I turned to Paul. You see, my friend, she chooses me. You have no chance. All the better for you, he replied in a rage. Then, after thinking for a few moments, he went on. Do you really care about taking this creature with you? She will spoil our journey. What are we to do with this woman who looks like I don't know what? They will not take us in any decent hotel. I, however, began to find the Italian much nicer than I had thought her at first, and I was now very desirous to take her with us. The idea delighted me. I replied, My dear fellow, we have accepted, and it is too late to recede. You were the first to advise me to say yes. It was very stupid, he growled, but do as you please. The train whistled, slackened speed, and we ran into the station. I got out of the carriage and offered my new companion my hand. She jumped out lightly, and I gave her my arm, which she took with an air of seeming repugnance. As soon as we had claimed our luggage, we sat off into the town, Paul walking in utter silence. To what hotel shall we go? I asked him. It may be difficult to get into the city of Paris with a woman, especially with this Italian. Paul interrupted me. Yes, with an Italian who looks more like a dancer than a duchess. However, that is no business of mine. Do just as you please. I was in a state of perplexity. I had written to the city of Paris to retain our rooms, and now I did not know what to do. Two commissaires followed us with our luggage. I continued, You might as well go on first, and say that we are coming, and give the landlord to understand that I have a a friend with me, and that we should like rooms quite by ourselves for us three, so as not to be brought in contact with other travellers. He will understand, and we will decide according to his answer. But Paul growled, Thank you. Such commissions, such parts do not suit me by any means. I did not come here to select your apartments, or to minister to your pleasures. But I was urgent. Look here, don't be angry. It is surely far better to go to a good hotel than a bad one and it is not difficult to ask the landlord for three separate bedrooms and a dining-room. I put the stress on three, and that decided him. He went on first, and I saw him go into a large hotel, while I remained on the other side of the street with my fair Italian, who did not say a word, and followed the porters with the luggage. Paul came back at last, looking as dissatisfied as my companion. That is settled, he said and they will take us in. But here are only two bedrooms. You must settle it as you can. I followed him rather ashamed of going in with such a strange companion. There were two bedrooms separated by a small sitting-room. I ordered a cold supper, and then I turned to the Italian with a perplexed look. We have only been able to get two rooms, so you must choose which you like. She replied with her eternal, Shemifa. I thereupon took up her little black wooden trunk, such as servants use, and took it into the room on the right, which I had chosen for her. A bit of paper was fastened to the box, on which was written, Mademoiselle Francesca Rondoli, Genoa. Your name is Francesca, I asked, and she nodded her head without replying. We shall have supper directly, I continued. Meanwhile, I dare say you would like 
to arrange your toilet a little. She answered with a mica, a word which she employed just as frequently as Chamey Fa. But I went on. It is always pleasant after a journey. Then I suddenly remembered that she had not, perhaps, the necessary requisites, for she appeared to me in a very singular position, as if she had just escaped from some disagreeable adventure, and I brought her my dressing-case. I put out all the little instruments for cleanliness and comfort which it contained, a nail-brush, a new toothbrush, I always carry a selection of them with me, a nail-scissors, a nail-file, and sponges. I uncorked a bottle of eau de cologne, one of lavender water, and a little bottle of new-mown hay, so that she might have a choice. Then I opened up my powder-box, and put out the powder-puff, placed my fine towels over the water-jug, and a piece of new soap near the basin. She watched my movements with a look of annoyance in her wide-open eyes, without appearing either astonished or pleased at my forethought. Here is all you require, I then said. I will tell you when supper is ready. When I returned to the sitting-room, I found Paul had shut himself in the other room, so I sat down to wait. The waiter went to and fro, bringing plates and glasses. He laid the table slowly, then put a cold chicken on it, and told me all was ready. I knocked gently on Mademoiselle Rondoli's door. Come in, she said, and when I did so, I was struck by a strong, heavy smell of perfumes, as if I were in a hairdresser's shop. The Italian was sitting on her trunk, in an attitude either of thoughtful discontent or absent-mindedness. Towel was still folded over the water-jug that was full of water, and the soap, untouched and dry, was lying beside the empty basin. But one would have thought that the young woman had used half the contents of the bottles of perfume. The eau de cologne, however, had been spared, as only about a third of it had gone. But to make up for that, she had used a surprising amount of lavender water and new-mown hay. A cloud of violet powder, a vague white mist, seemed still to be floating in the air, from the effects of her overpowdering her face and neck. It seemed to cover her eyelashes, eyebrows, and her hair on her temples was like snow, while her cheeks were plastered with it, and layers of it covered her nostrils and corners of her eyes, and her chin. When she got up, she exhaled such a strong odor of perfume that it almost made me feel faint. When we sat down to supper, I found that Paul was in a most execrable temper, and I could get nothing out of him but blame irritable words and disagreeable remarks. Mademoiselle Francesca ate like an ogre, and as soon as she was finished her meal, she threw herself upon the sofa in the sitting-room. Sitting beside her, I said gallantly, kissing her hand, "'Shall I have the bed prepared, or will you sleep on the couch? It is all the same to me, Chamey Fa. Her indifference vexed me. Should you like to retire at once?' yes i'm very sleepy she got up yawned gave her hand to paul who took it with a furious look and i lighted her into the bedroom a disquieting feeling haunted me here is all you want i said again the next morning she got up early like a woman who is accustomed to work she woke me up doing so and i watched her through half-closed eyelids she came and went without hurrying herself as if she were astonished at having nothing to do. At length she went to the dressing-table, and in a moment emptied all my bottles of perfume. She certainly also used some water, but very little. When she was quite dressed, she sat down on her trunk again, and clasping one knee between her hands, she seemed to be thinking. At that moment I pretended to first notice her, and said, Good morning, Francesca. Without seeming at all in a better temper than the previous night, she murmured, Good morning. When I asked her whether she had slept well, she nodded her head, and jumping out of bed, I went and kissed her. She turned her face toward me like a child 
was being kissed against its will. But I took her tenderly in my arms, and gently pressed my lips on her eyelids, which she closed with evident distaste under my kisses on her fresh cheek and full lips, which she turned away. You do not seem to like being kissed, I said to her. Mika, was her only answer. I sat down on the trunk by her side, and passing my arm through hers, I said, Mika, 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 in reply to everything. I shall call you Mademoiselle Mika, I think. For the first time, I fancied I saw the shadow of a smile on her lips, but it passed so quickly that I may have been mistaken. But if you never say anything but Mika, I shall not know what to do to please you. Let me see. What shall we do today? She hesitated a moment, as if some fancy had flitted through her head, and then she said carelessly, It is all the same to me, whatever you like. Very well, Mademoiselle Mika, we will have a carriage and go for a drive. As you please, she said. All was waiting for us in the dining-room, looking as bored as third parties usually do in love affairs. I assumed a delighted air, and shook hands with him with triumphant energy. What are you thinking of doing? he asked. First of all, we shall go and see a little of the town, and then we might get a carriage and take a drive into the neighborhood. We breakfasted almost in silence, and then set out. I dragged Francesca from palace to palace, and she either looked at nothing or merely glanced carelessly at various masterpieces. Paul followed us, growling all sorts of disagreeable things. Then we all three took a drive in silence into the country and returned to dinner. The next day, the same thing, and the next day again. And on the third, Paul said to me, Look here, I'm going to leave you. I am not going to stop here for three weeks watching you make love to this creature. I was perplexed and annoyed, for to my great surprise I had become singularly attached to Francesca. A man is but weak and foolish, carried away by the merest trifle, and a coward every time his senses are excited or mastered. I clung to this unknown girl, silent and dissatisfied as she always was. I liked her somewhat ill-tempered face, the dissatisfied droop of her mouth, the weariness of her look. I liked her fatigued mo movements, the contemptuous way in which she let me kiss her, the very indifference of her caresses, a secret bond, that mysterious bond of physical love, which does not satisfy, bound me to her. I told Paul so, quite frankly. He treated me as if I were a fool, and then said, Very well, take her with you. But she obstinately refused to leave Genoa, without giving any reason. I besought, I reasoned, I promised, and all was of no avail and so I stayed on. Paul declared that he would go by himself, and went so far as to pack up his portmanteau, but he remained all the same. Thus a fortnight passed. Francesca was always silent and irritable, lived beside me rather than with me, responded to all my requirements and all my propositions with her perpetual chemifa, or with her no less perpetual mika. My friend became more and more furious, but my only answer was, you can go if you are tired of staying. I am not detaining you. Then he called me names, overwhelmed me with reproaches, and exclaimed, Where do you think I can go now? We had three weeks at our disposal, and here is a fortnight gone. I cannot continue my journey now, and, in any case, I am not going to Venice, Florence, and Rome by all by myself, but you will pay for it, and more dearly than you think, most likely. You are not going to bring a man all the way from Paris in order to shut him up at a hotel in Genoa with an Italian adventuress. When I told him, very calmly, to return to Paris, he exclaimed that he intended to do so the very next day. The next day he was still there, still in a rage and swearing. By the time we began to know the streets through which we wandered from morning till night, sometimes French people would turn round astonished 
at meeting their fellow countrymen in the company of this girl with such a striking costume who looked singularly out of place not to say compromising beside us she used to walk along leaning on my arm without looking at anything why did she remain with me with us who seemed so little to amuse her who was she where did she come from what was she doing had she any plan or idea where did she live as an adventuress by chance meetings i tried in vain to find out and to explain it the better i knew her the more enigmatic she became she seemed to be a girl of poor family who had been taken away and then cast aside and lost what did she think would become of her or whom was she waiting for she certainly did not appear to be trying to make a conquest of me or to make any real profit out of me i tried to question her to speak to her of her childhood and family but she never gave me an answer i stayed with her my heart unfettered my senses enchained never wearied of holding her in my arms that proud and quarrelsome woman captivated by my senses or rather carried away overcome by a youthful healthy powerful charm which emanated from her fragrant person and from the well-moulded lines of her body another week passed and the term of my journey was drawing on for i had to be back in paris by the eleventh of july by this time paul had come to take his part in the adventure though still grumbling at me while i invented pleasures distractions and excursions to amuse francesca and my friend and in order to do this i gave myself a great amount of trouble one day i proposed an excursion to santa margarita that charming little town in the midst of gardens hidden at the foot of a slope which stretches far into the sea up to the village of portofino we three walked along the excellent road which goes along the foot of the mountain suddenly francesca said to me i shall not be able to go with you to-morrow i must go and see some of my relatives that was all i did not ask her any questions as i was quite sure she would not answer me the next morning she got up very early when she spoke to me it was in a constrained and hesitating voice if i do not come back again shall you come and fetch me most certainly i shall was my reply where shall i go to find you then she explained you must go into the street victor emmanuel down the falcone road and the side street san rafael and into the furniture shop in the building on the right at the end of a court and there you must ask for madame rondoli that is the place and so she went away leaving me rather astonished when paul saw that i was alone he stammered out where is francesca and when i told him what had happened he exclaimed my dear fellow let us make use of our opportunity and bolt as it is our time is up two days more or less make no difference let us go at once go and pack up your things off we go but i refused i could not as i told him leave the girl in that manner after such companionship for nearly three weeks at any rate i ought to say good-bye to her and make her accept a present i certainly had no intention of behaving badly to her but he would not listen he pressed and worried me and i would not give way i remained indoors for several hours expecting francesca's return but she did not come and at last at dinner paul said with a triumphant air she has flown my dear fellow it is certainly very strange i must acknowledge that i was surprised and rather vexed he laughed in my face and made fun of me it is not exactly a bad way of getting rid of you though rather rather primitive just wait for me i shall be back in a moment they often say how long are you going to wait i should not wonder if you were foolish enough to go and look for her at the address she gave you does madame rondoli live here please no monsieur i'll bet that you are longing to go there not in the least i protested and i assure you that if she does not come back to-morrow morning i shall leave by the express at eight o'clock 
I shall have waited twenty-four hours, and that is enough. My conscience will be quite clear. I spent an uneasy and unpleasant evening, for I really had at heart a very tender feeling for her. I went to bed at twelve o'clock, and hardly slept at all, and I got up at six, called Paul, packed up my things, and two hours later we set out for France together. The Rondoli Sisters, Part Three. The next year, at just about the same period, I was seized as one is with a periodical fever, with a new desire to go to Italy, and I immediately made up my mind to carry it into effect. There is no doubt that every really well-educated man ought to see Florence, Venice, and Rome. This travel has also the additional advantage of providing many subjects of conversation and society, and of giving one an opportunity of bringing forward artistic generalities which appear profound. This time I went alone, and I arrived in Genoa at the same time as the year before, but without any adventure on the road. I went to the same hotel, and actually happened to have the same room. I was hardly in bed when the recollection of Francesca, which, since the evening before, had been floating vaguely through my mind, haunted me with strange persistency. I thought of her nearly the whole night, and by degrees the wish to see her again seized me, a confused desire at first, which gradually grew stronger and more intense. At last I made up my mind to spend the next day in Genoa, try to find her, and if I should not succeed, to take the evening train. Early in the morning I set out on my search. I remembered the direction she had given me when she left me, perfectly. Victor Emanuel Street, house of the furniture dealer, at the bottom of the yard on the right. I found it without the least difficulty, and I knocked at the door of a somewhat dilapidated-looking dwelling. It was opened by a stout woman, who must have been very handsome, but who actually was only very dirty. Although she had too much plumpness, she still bore the lines of majestic beauty. Her untidy hair fell over her forehead and shoulders, and one fancied one could see her floating about in an enormous dressing-gown covered with spots of dirt and grease. Round her neck she wore a great gilt necklace, and on her wrists were splendid bracelets of Genoa filigree work. In a rather hostile manner she asked me what I wanted, and I replied by requesting her to tell me whether Francesca Rondoli lived here. What do you want with her? she asked. I had the pleasure of meeting her last year, and I would like to see her again. The old woman looked at me suspiciously. Where did you meet her? she asked. By here in Genoa itself. What is your name? I hesitated a moment. Then I told her. I had hardly done so when the Italian put out her arms as if to embrace me. Oh, you are the Frenchman! How glad I am to see you! But what grief you caused my poor child! She waited for you for a month. Yes, a whole month. At first she thought you would come to fetch her. She wanted to see whether you loved her. If you only knew how she cried when she saw you were not coming. She cried till she seemed to have no tears left, and she went to the hotel, but you had gone. She thought that most likely you were travelling in Italy, and that you would return to Genoa to fetch her, as she would not go without you. And she waited more than a month, monsieur, and she was so unhappy, so unhappy. I am her mother. I really felt a little disconcerted, but I regained my self-possession and asked, where is she now? She has gone to Paris with a painter, a delightful man who loves her very much, and who gives her everything she wants. Just look at what she sent me. They are very pretty, are they not? And she showed me, with quite southern animation, her heavy bracelets and necklace. I have also, she continued, earrings with stones in them, and a silk dress, and some rings, but I only wear them on grand occasions. Oh, she is very happy, monsieur, very happy. She will be so pleased when I tell her you have been here pray come in and sit down. You will take something or other, surely. But I refused. 
as I now wished to get away by the first train. But she took me by the arm and pulled me in, saying, Please come in. I must tell her that you have been here. I found myself in a small, rather dark room, furnished with only a table and a few chairs. She continued, Oh, she is very happy now, very happy. When you met her in the train, she was very miserable. She had had an unfortunate love affair in Marseilles, and she was coming home, poor child. But she liked you at once. She was still rather sad. You understand. Now she has all she wants, and she writes and tells me everything she does. His name is Bellamin, and they say he is a great painter in your country. He fell in love with her at first sight. But will you take a glass of syrup? It is very good. Are you quite alone this year? Yes, I said. Quite alone. I felt an increasing inclination to laugh, as my first disappointment was dispelled by what Mother Rondoli said. I was obliged, however, to drink a glass of her syrup. So you are quite alone, she continued? How sorry I am that Francesca is not here now. She would have been company for you all the time you stayed. It is not very amusing to go about by oneself, and she will be very sorry also. Then, as I was getting up to go, she exclaimed, Would you like to go with Carlotta? She knows all the walks very well. She is my second daughter, monsieur. No doubt she took my look of surprise for consent, for she opened the inner door and called out up the dark stairs, which I could not see. Carlotta, Carlotta, make haste, my dear child. I tried to protest, but she would not listen. No, she will be very glad to go with you. She is very nice, and much more cheerful than her sister. And she is a good girl, a very good girl, whom I love very much. In a few moments a tall, slender, dark girl appeared, her hair hanging down, and her youthful figure showing unmistakably beneath an old dress of her mother's. The latter at once told her how matters stood. This is Francesca's Frenchman, you know, the one whom she knew last year. He is quite alone, and has come to look for her, poor fellow. So I told him that you would go with him to keep him company. The girl looked at me with handsome dark eyes, and said, smiling, I have no objection, if he wishes it. I could not possibly refuse, and merely said, Of course, I should be very glad of your company. Her mother pushed her out. Go and get dressed directly. Put on your blue dress, and your hat with the flowers, and make haste. As soon as she had left the room, the old woman explained herself. I have two others, but they are much younger. It costs a lot of money to bring up four children. Luckily the eldest is off my hands at present. Then she told all about herself, about her husband, who had been an employee of the railroad, but who was dead, and she expiated on the good qualities of Carlotta, her second girl, who soon returned, dressed, as her sister had been, in a strikingly peculiar manner. Her mother examined her from head to foot, and after finding everything right, she said, Now, my child, you can go. Then turning to the girl, she said, Be sure you are back at ten o'clock tonight. You know the door is locked, then. The answer was, All right, Mamma. don't alarm yourself. She took my arm, and we went wandering about the streets, just as I had wandered the previous year with her sister. We returned to the hotel for lunch, and then I took my new friend to Santa Margarita, just as I had taken her sister the previous year. During the whole fortnight which I had at my disposal, I took Carlotta to all the places of interest in and about Genoa. She gave me no cause to regret her sister. She cried when I left her, and the morning of my departure I gave her four bracelets for her mother, besides a substantial token of my affection for herself. One of these days I intend to return to Italy, and I cannot help remembering the certain amount of uneasiness mingled with hope that Madame Rondoli has two more daughters. The End of the Rondoli Sisters, read by Roy Schreiber.